Good morning. Um, this morning's scripture reading is 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's holy word. This morning, we're going to conclude Peter's letter. After a couple of months looking at this amazing letter, we're going to conclude Peter's words to Christian churches in Asia Minor, current day Turkey. And as you can see now, we finally see that he is indeed writing from Rome because Babylon was code for the city of Rome and for the Roman Empire. And so your sister who is in Rome also greets you is a way of saying the church in Rome where I am uh, with my spiritual son, Mark, who wrote a gospel from Peter's perspective, uh, greets you. And we've been seeing throughout Peter's letter that he is urging Christians everywhere to embrace their identity as exiles, as refugees in a world that is not their own. And he's telling them from chapter one on, you don't belong to this world, but you are called in this world as lights in the darkness. You are a spiritual house of living stones with Jesus as the foundation stone. You are a kingdom of priests called to declare the praises of this God who has taken you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And because of that, Peter has been telling us through chapters two and three and four, honor everyone in every relationship with the people and the institutions of this world, honor the citizens of this world, even when they dislike you, even when they mistreat you. In all relationships, in the home, in the church, in politics, in business, in culture, honor everyone. But isn't it tempting, right, when you look at what's going on in the world, politically, socially, when you look at, at media and the news, and you see many conflicts, and you see how people are responding to your ideas, and to your comments, and to your belief system, isn't it tempting... In conflict with the people of this world and in the institutions of this world, isn't it tempting to want to defend yourself? Isn't it tempting to want to retaliate? To want to fight back? I don't mean, I don't mean disagree and debate respectfully. I mean, isn't it tempting to want to get back at people who criticize you and belittle you and actually harm you? Now, that behavior, that retaliatory behavior, Peter has been saying all along, dims our light as Christians. Retaliation in politics and government, in business and the workplace, in your neighborhood, in your classrooms, in community. 
Retaliation as a mindset and a habit as Christians actually dims our light. It hurts our witness, Peter has been saying. But how do you resist it? How do you resist the temptation to retaliate? According to the New Testament's authors, resisting the temptation to retaliate is a matter of perspective. That's where it begins. And Peter sheds light on it right here in this passage. The people of this world are not the real enemy. The people who criticize you and look down on you and pass you over for a promotion and ignore you and criticize you openly. They're not the real enemy. The cause of the conflicts that we face is the devil. I'm just going to say it very simply. You don't hear a lot of this talk in the world today, but Peter makes it very simple. Literally, he is an adversary. Whether it's the old Hebrew word Satan or diabolos, the Greek word, either way, the devil is by name an adversary. That's what the word means. The Bible isn't saying that there's simply a bad guy out there. The Bible is saying you have an adversary out there. And in verse 8, Peter describes him as a prowling lion. A predator looking for Christians to devour, Peter says. Now, what do predators do? They, they roam, right? They roam, they lurk, and they wait for someone to fall behind. They wait for somebody to get distracted, to get lost. And then they pounce and they take advantage of the opportunity. I, I'm always impressed by my cat. And her ability to roam around the neighborhood. I just saw her doing that this morning. I was looking out the kitchen window. And I, oh, there she is. And she was just roaming around in the field behind our house. You can find her anywhere in the neighborhood. In the street, on the sidewalk, in the tree, in the field. She does come in our house sometimes too. And I've always been impressed by her ability to find, to find any type of an animal to pick on and play with and leave for dead. Uh, baby rabbits, mice, moles, little birdies. Uh, I'm always impressed by the effectiveness of her kill rate as a domesticated pet. I'm convinced that if she were large enough, she'd have killed me by now. But this, the, 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 the house cat gives you insight into Satan's game. Okay? When you read the book of Job, a man of faith who suffered tremendously by the influence of Satan, and yet did not lose his faith. You get insight into Satan's game. In Job chapter 1, there's a scene where uh, the angels come before the presence of God to worship him. And and God notices that Satan, Lucifer's in the mix. He somehow ended up in in the heavenly throng. And in the Bible, in Job chapter 1, God says to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan replies, from going to and fro on the earth And from walking up and down on it. God says, what have you been up to? And Satan says, oh, just wandering around. Now, what's the deal there? Is is Satan bored? He has nothing to do, so he's just wandering around? No, Satan is hunting. To and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. Predators wander and roam. Because they are hunting. They are waiting for someone to pick on. And they're waiting to pounce. Now, Peter also says, not only is there an adversary out there. 
but he's your adversary. Second person, plural. Your adversary, the devil. It's important to make that distinction. He's not only God's enemy, but because he is God's enemy, he is the enemy of God's people. He is qualitatively opposed to the church and to Christians because they belong to God and he is opposed to God. Now, it's not that Satan personally afflicts every person. It is not that Satan personally afflicts every believer. He has a lot of help and they're very organized. Okay. Um, we do know that he afflicts individuals uh, from the Bible. We see that he personally confronted Eve, that he personally afflicted Job, that he personally afflicted Judas. He, he even sought after Peter, Jesus tells us. In Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, he wanted Peter, uh, but he couldn't get him. It's not that Satan is personally inflicting every Christian, but as a whole, he is completely against Christianity. He's completely against God's people, the church. Jesus called him the ruler of this world, actually. And in apocalyptic books in the Bible, like Daniel and Revelation, uh, these books and their writers, they reveal Satan is actually behind it all. Satan's behind, as, as the ruler of this world, Satan's behind government. Satan's behind politics. Satan's behind culture. Satan, be, Satan is behind movements in society, especially conflicts and wars. Not saying he's responsible for everything because a lot of good things are actually happening by the grace of God. But the Bible reveals to us that the ruler of this world is like a puppeteer and government and culture and politics and people and worldviews, ideas, philosophies, habits are all on the strings. And he's just pulling the strings behind the scenes as a grand puppeteer, a grand director of a scene. Now, I want to give you some assurance. Satan can't spoil your eternal inheritance if you're a Christian. You remember in chapter 1, verse 4, Peter says that the Christian has an inheritance that is imperishable, that cannot spoil or fade because it is, verse 4 of chapter 1, kept in heaven for you who are shielded by God's power until salvation is ready to be revealed in the last days. So Satan is a force, but he cannot rob you as a Christian of your eternal inheritance in Christ. And Peter backs this up again in chapter 5 and verse 10, where he says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So what I hope you're going to remember from today is that the enemy of our souls cannot rob us from the Savior of our souls. That is a guaranteed promise. But he can do a lot of damage. God's adversary can do a lot of damage to your witness if you're a Christian. The devil can dim your light in a dark world. The devil can render the church and its people ineffective in carrying out our mission as Christians. Carol Ruvalo, who wrote a great little devotional commentary on First and Second Peter, says, this is the way she puts it. Peter tells us to respect his ferocity, the devil's ferocity. Not because he can cost us the ultimate victory, but because he can weaken our common cause 
which, she says, is giving God glory. The devil can deface the beauty of our spiritual house and hamper the proclamation of our Father's excellencies. Remember, Peter has called you living stones being built up into a spiritual house with Jesus as the cornerstone. Peter has called you a kingdom of priests who are here to intercede for the rest of humanity. Begging God's mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation upon the rest of humanity. You are lights here in the darkness. And what Ruvalo is saying is Satan can't destroy us as a church. But man, she can hamper the proclamation of our father God's excellencies. Uh, Satan can deface the beauty of the spiritual house that God is building among us. So behind the conflict, behind the suffering, behind the persecution... Peter says, is a formidable adversary. And he is committed to frustrate our mission. Not just in general. He's not just committed to the church in general. He's committed to destroying deep run church. And whether it's him personally or one of his minions. He is committed to destroying you. To rendering you ineffective in your calling as a Christian. Now, I want to ask you a question. How do you respond to someone once you know that he or she is opposed to you from your own experience? It can be in your workplace, uh, uh, childhood friendship, something that happened to you in school, in your community. When you finally have discovered that somebody is opposed to you, that somebody is regarding you as his enemy, as her enemy, how do you start acting? How do you respond to that? Yeah, Dan. Mistrust. You start, you start, you lack trust, you stop talking. Okay. Yeah. Avoidance. You stop, you just avoid them. Okay. Yeah. You can see some people confront. Yeah. I have some Sicilian blood. And so I just, we love to confront and it's often very, very harmful. (laughs) Some of us avoid and some of us confront. There's a healthy form of confrontation. Good. So, so confrontation can be a good thing. Excellent. Good. Good. What else? Yeah. You feel like you need to defend yourself against accusations. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else? Okay, so there's a redemptive side. You discover someone's opposed to you. First, look at yourself like David did in Psalm 139. He's talking about all these wicked people who hate God. But then he says, God, check my heart out. Is there any wicked way in me? So uh, confronta- uh, somebody opposed to you does give you an opportunity to stop and look at yourself and see if their opposition is, is well-deserved. Good. That's good. What else? Prayer, you begin to pray when you discover somebody is opposed to you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Whether we admit it or not, we we tend to talk badly about them. Gossip and slander are, are a natural outpouring of feeling like you're being attacked or opposed or intimidated. It makes you feel better about yourself. It's a form of counterattack. Yeah. 
Yeah. So from a, from, from a militaristic perspective, okay, somebody's an enemy, well, go defeat them, kill them. Yeah, common sense, right? Yeah, one more, Jack. Ah. So, yeah. It's interesting. Uh, you bring other people in on the conflict, and that could be a good thing or a bad thing. Jesus had something to say about it in Matthew chapter 18. There's a good way, once you discover that, that, that you have sinned against somebody or so they have sinned against you, there's actually a healthy way to address it and bring other people in on it. Um, uh, and and we, we rarely follow that without help and without conviction. Really good, really good responses. There are all sorts of things, positive, negative, wicked, righteous, that we do when we discover that there's someone out there who's opposed to us. Now, here's what Peter says should be the Christian's response to spiritual warfare. I'm going to call it watchful resistance. There are all sorts of ways that we've learned from our family culture, from our uh, from our ethnic culture, uh, from watching movies, from our own personality and how we're hardwired. There are all sorts of ways that we respond to tension and conflict. But Peter says there's a way for a Christian to respond to spiritual warfare. Watchful resistance. Look at verse 8. He starts the whole passage off by saying, be sober-minded. Be watchful. You've seen that word before. Be watchful. Jesus used that word. He was talking to Peter and James and John in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was sweating blood because he was so scared of what he had to endure the next morning. And they were exhausted and he said to them, be watchful. Watch, keep watch while I pray. It's the same word. Peter remembered that moment. And now he's telling his friends in Christ, be watchful. Keep watch. What's he saying? Stay awake. As refugees of light in a dark world, stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Don't nod off in your prayers to your heavenly father. Don't allow yourself to be distracted from his truth in his word. Don't. Begin to separate yourself from his people. Theologians have different ways of describing the means of grace. Uh, the blessings that God gives us that remind us of his grace to us. And three big ones are prayer, the word of God, and the fellowship of his people. Right? Don't nod off in pursuing those things. Stay awake. You know, I've heard that crows are very effective in not getting caught. I'm almost guaranteed that I will never see my cat catch a crow. I have a friend who has crows all over the place outside of his office window, crows and squirrels, and he has a BB gun in his office. And the squirrels are no problem. He cannot catch, he, he cannot distract these crows with his BB gun. And he said he's discovered why, because there's always one that is perched in a high place and serves as a lookout. They work together. There's always a lookout keeping watch. And so they protect themselves. Now, once you're confronted 
I mean, you have to keep watch, but what do you do when you're keeping watch and you're actually confronted? How should you respond? Well, Peter goes on to say in verse 9, resist him. Resist him firm in your faith. And he says, says something similar down in verse 12. He starts talking about the entire letter. And he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Everything that Peter has said. Everything from the beginning of the letter that he has said. He's assuring them that what they are reading in this letter is the true grace of God. And that they are to stand firm in that. So he says, resist Satan by being firm in your faith and standing firm in the true grace of God. That's the best resistance. In a spiritual conflict, the best resistance is consistent, persevering faith. That is grounded. You got to catch this part. Consistent, persevering faith that is grounded in the true grace of God. There's a place in scripture where Paul is writing to Timothy about the qualifications for, for leaders in the church. He's talking about elders and deacons. First Timothy chapter 3. One of the things Paul says is that an elder must not be a recent convert. Now why? Why would that be? He says, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. If, if some, Paul, is, Paul was saying in, in his letter to Timothy, if somebody is new to the faith, they have not yet learned how to live by grace. Grace has saved them. Grace has brought them in, but they haven't been around long enough to learn how to fight against their own pride. We are by default very prideful people. And even as Christians, we may think, oh, well, I just I did that. I'm holy enough. I'm smart enough. I'm intelligent enough. I'm, I'm committed enough. I'm faithful enough. And that's pride. And Paul says to Timothy, if you put someone in the saddle too soon after conversion, they will not yet have built up a resistance to human pride. And they will minister and serve and lead out of pride and not from the foundation of grace, the gift of God. Now, why did I bring that up? Because it's not enough to say that the resistance is to live by faith. The resistance is a life lived by faith that is based on the grace of God and not your own works. And not your own religious performance. The best defense and the best offense is living by faith in God's grace. As we allow God's spirit to remake our identity. It has to begin there. You're in exile. You don't belong here, but God's placed you here. And your inheritance is coming. It's kept in heaven for you until the last day. It begins with identity. And then it moves into the way you think about God and yourself and the world. And now... The grace of God begins to change your priorities now that your identity has influenced your thinking. And finally, your behavior begins to change. Identity, thinking, priorities, behavior. We've talked about that before as a church. Living by faith in the God's grace, allowing it to transform all of that, knowing that Satan can upset you, but he cannot destroy you. We can't avoid temptation. We cannot avoid being tempted. If Jesus couldn't avoid it, neither will you. You can't avoid suffering. You cannot avoid persecution. Not in Satan's world. You cannot avoid these things when Jesus says that he is the ruler of this world. And because he had trouble in this world, the world will give you trouble also because you belong to him. 
But Peter's point is, you can't avoid all these things. You can avoid responding sinfully to them. That's Peter's point. He says, you'll remember in chapter 2, verse 16, live as people who are free, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Can't avoid all this hard stuff. You can avoid responding to it and to them sinfully. So spiritual warfare requires spiritual weapons prescribed by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual readiness, spiritual resistance, which really mean I, you may be looking for some elaborate thing or some smoking gun or, you know, a silver bullet, some special weapon. Peter doesn't give that to you. He says, walk in faith. Walk in faith. Stand on the grace of God. That, that's it. That's the resistance. That's the response to spiritual warfare. Keep on keeping on. Saints, keep persevering. And I want to ask you this, are we as diligent living by faith as we are diligent keeping our jobs, working hard in our careers? Are, are we as diligent living by faith as we are ordering our homes and seeing to it that our children have really good educations and are well-rounded and are protected from the people of the world? Are we as diligent in living by faith as we are playing? Whether it's with our video games or, or our most dear hobbies or our fitness, our exercise or keeping up our appearance. Are we as diligent living by faith, tending to our faith, to our relationship with our Lord? Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh preacher um, who who ministered in London, um, middle of the 20th century, uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, around that time frame. And he wrote two really, really good books. They were published the year I was born, I found out this week. Two really, really helpful books on spiritual warfare. One is called The Christian Warfare, and the other one's called The Christian Soldier. And they're both expositions of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's big passage on spiritual warfare. And Lloyd-Jones believed in the middle of the 20th century, and I think it's even more applicable now, 50, 60 years later, that the biggest problem in the world that blinds people, Christians and non-Christians, to the truth of what Satan's up to is ignorance. Spiritual ignorance blinds us, he wrote 50, 60 years ago. And I want to talk about ignorance in the church and ignorance in the world. But let me go to that passage, Ephesians chapter 6. This is a big passage by the Apostle Paul. And in that passage, Paul said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Man, it sounds like Satan is organized, doesn't it? He's not just goofing around. He has help and he's very organized, Paul said. But it says we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against all of this. Now, let me ask you as a Christian, are you wrestling against flesh and blood? Are you predominantly struggling against flesh and blood? 
Is that your main issue? Is that what you're mostly concerned about? People who you disagree with? People who bother you? People who have hurt you? Harmed you? Have criticized you? Called you ignorant for being a Christian? Taken your job away? Or overlooked one of your children? Are you more intent in wrestling against flesh and blood? Because Paul says the problem is just the opposite. The problem we have to face is just the opposite. Are we so distracted by our opposition as Christians in politics and in government? Are you so distracted on social media by people who pose to be your opposition that you have grown blind to the real enemy? You know, those who oppose us because of our faith in Jesus, they're actually fellow victims. Do you, do you see that? We're actually fighting against fellow victims who Jesus called for us to love and to pray for and to serve. Love your enemies is the theme of the New Testament. To love your enemies as Jesus loved us while we were still sinners dying for us. And so we end up looking at flesh and blood and saying, you're my enemy. I am opposed to you. I'm going to get you back. I'm going to come up with a great reply. I'm going to do to you what you did to me. I'm going to just, I'm going to just paint all people like you with a very broad brushstroke and write all of you off because of what you've done to me. When all along the Bible, the New Testament saying they're victims of the same conflict, but they're blind and you're not. And you're supposed to serve them and love them and pray for them and bless them. Not seeing yourself as a spiritual target as a Christian renders you a sitting target. You're focused on the wrong enemy, Paul says. Peter's saying, don't do that. Now, that would be ignorance in the church. That's how the church's light dims, okay? What about ignorance in the world? Because you could be here today... And you're looking at Christianity saying, I'm not sure that that's what describes me. I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know that I'm a follower of Jesus, or maybe you know you're not. Now, I want to be respectful, but Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you're ignorant too. Christians are not the only people uh, susceptible to ignorance. Everybody's susceptible to ignorance. And 50 years ago, 40 years ago, Lloyd-Jones said this, ignorance is the main cause of the whole troubled state of the world at this moment. Remember, he's writing from the middle of the 20th century. A lot's happened since then. He wrote, it is, the world is ignorant of God. That's the real problem. Why? I'll, I'll explain. He'll explain. He says, they boast of their learning, their culture, their sophistication. These great thinkers, so-called are really quite baffled by the state of the world at the present time and cannot understand it. And, and he says, H.G. Wells, uh, an, an author a uh, hundred years ago, H.G. Wells taught for a long lifetime that if you only educated people, they would never fight again. But there he was trying to write his last book in the early days of the Second World War in the most educated century of history. And how much more are we educated now in the 21st century than people were 70 years ago? Lloyd-Jones went on to write, everything is advancing and going forward, so we must be better. But the, fact proves, the facts prove that we are obviously worse. Have you wondered, have you looked at the world and said to yourself, what is going on? Medicine, science, technology, 
progress amongst the races, progress against injustice and prejudice. And yet with all of humanity's advancements in the 21st century, you still see cruelty. You still see injustice. You still see hatred. You still see war. You still see genocide. Have you wondered what in the world is going on? As we move forward, in a sense, we're moving backward at the same time. I hope you will see that the Bible really makes sense. Your worldview doesn't make sense. None of this makes sense. We should be advancing and we're not. But the Bible says that there is a spiritual adversary greater than humanity that wants humanity to fail. What's ironic, Lloyd-Jones wrote, is that simultaneously humanity wants freedom from God. The, the one person who can actually help us. And then he says, it is the supreme achievement of the devil to persuade man that at the point where he is most muddled and enslaved, he is most free. We think we are free. By saying to God, I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to live my life without you. Or I'm a Christian, but I'm going to handle conflict my own way. I have effective means of conflict resolution. But freedom from God is really just evidence of enslavement to the ruler of this world. Now, it's a good thing that unlike old mythology, the God of the Bible and Satan are not relative equals they are not they are not on an equal footing as adversaries not even close there is hope in the conflicts of this world whether it's just a conflict you're facing with a co-worker or a relative or whether it's conflicts at the highest levels of government that you are worried about in this election year Whatever it may be, the gospel of Christ offers us hope in this conflict. And I'm going to quote from Isaiah chapter 50, because in Isaiah's writings, there's this character called the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. Isaiah was prophesying that a savior would come from God, but the nature of this savior was that he would be a servant. A lot of people missed it when Jesus was walking around the earth and, and, and preaching. But Isaiah talked about a coming suffering servant that God would bring for salvation. And this is what in Isaiah 50, the suffering servant says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. You can almost hear Jesus Christ taunting Satan in this passage. You know, you and I have no right to taunt Satan. Christians walk around talking and speaking and praying like they they have more power than Satan does. I don't see that in the Bible. There's a place in the book of Jude where we're told that Michael the archangel, okay, credentials a bit above yours and mine. Michael the archangel wouldn't even rebuke Satan 
in an argument they were having on his own authority. That he said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, is what Jude says. The Lord rebuke you. He wouldn't even rebuke Satan himself. I have no right to taunt Satan. Jesus does. Jesus made him. You know, Satan can throw everything that he has at Jesus. Just look at these words. Look at the suffering servant saying, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him draw near to me. Satan can throw all that he has at Jesus. You know, the beauty of it is that God will take Satan's most elaborate and wicked schemes and use them against him. There's an ironic beauty to our pain and suffering in this. God has ordained this great irony that that Satan's cruelest attacks against you and against his against Christ's church will be the very trials that perfect you. Satan's greatest weapons, Satan's greatest campaigns to destroy you and hurt you and depress you and afflict you. God has ordained for those very trials, those very onslaughts, onslaughts to be the things that make you like gold. As Peter said in chapter one, this suffering for a little while will refine you. So that your faith is proved to be genuine when the Lord Jesus appears. And so in the end, Satan's schemes against you may inflict pain on you for now. But Jesus is using that very onslaught to perfect you and make you beautiful, which is his very intention. And the proof that he will succeed is he has already taken the brunt of Satan's attack for you. The prowling lion cannot defeat the lion of Judah. There is no comparison. And our ability to resist him is grounded in Christ's ability to resist him. And that gets back to living by faith, resting upon God's grace. Is that we do not defeat Satan in our own strength. Are you crazy? No. Jesus defeats Satan and our faith is in him. Jesus set his face like flint against demonic conflict, against all human resistance. And achieve your salvation on the cross. And the book of Revelation says he is coming back. And Satan, that old serpent, that old dragon. Will finally and completely and eternally be brought by the Lord Jesus to justice. So we stay awake. We resist him. We even become conquerors. As Paul said in Romans 8. As we hide ourselves in Jesus Christ. There it is. Hide yourself in Jesus Christ. The New Testament keeps talking about being found in him. Remaining in him. As branches remain in a vine. Our spiritual resistance and success is found in hiding ourselves in Jesus Christ. There's the old The old hymn by Charity Bancroft, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. The enemy of our souls cannot rob us from the savior of our souls. That's the point Peter makes as he closes out his letter to Christians living in the first century. 
So like them, let's, as a church and as individuals, let's pursue our faith. And what I mean by that is let's not get out of shape, allowing our spiritual lives to develop atrophy. Let's be nimble. Let's be fit. Let's be watchful. Let's be ready. As exiles, resisting Satan for just a little while. Until the God of all grace restores us. That's his promise. Let's pray. Father, I I think of those words written by Luther in his hymn. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Father, we know that the institutions of this world, those who are opposed to us because of our faith in Jesus, who are in this world, and the ruler of this world can inflict much damage. We, Father, we are, we are limping, hobbling people. We have been wounded spiritually, psychologically, physically in so many ways by this enemy. We are hurting. We are discouraged. But help us take heart that Jesus Christ has overcome the world and has overcome this enemy. Help us to hide ourselves in Christ, to find ourselves in him. Our cornerstone, our defender, the savior of ourselves. Father, help us to pursue our faith that is characterized by a belief that we stand and are forgiven and succeed by the grace of God. Father, redeem us from our pride. Help us to be servants of light here while we stay. In Christ's name, amen.